0: We have announcements. Just a reminder: we're going to have the picnic on Saturday, October the nineteenth, out at Orlando Salas's in in Patterson, and we'll put information about that, maps, and everything you need uh, as we get closer to the event. Also, on the twenty-first, a week from this Saturday, we will be having our men's prayer breakfast, and so we encourage the men to not only come out but also bring somebody. We're going to have we always have a great time of fellowship. And it's always around the word. And then uh, out here in the fellowship hall, we have put out some of the brochures for the pre-trib rapture study group meeting. This year is going to be just outstanding. The topic is on messianic prophecies. And the first speaker leading off is the guy who's really written the book, the best book I've seen out there. And that is, uh, Dr. Michael Rydelnik. We've seen some videos from, uh, Michael here. He has, uh, um, he will be speaking. That will set the opening. And then other speakers are Randy Price, Ed Heinsen, uh, Dr. Walt Kaiser, which I'm really looking forward to. He also has written an outstanding book on the, uh, on the Messiah. And he will be, he will be speaking. And, Mark Hitchcock, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, Dr. Uh, Gary Gramacki, whose father, Robert Gramacki wrote one of the best books dealing with the tongues problem and the charismatic issue back in the late 60s and had an upstart young man in his classes at Cedarville, what is now Cedarville University, back in the early 1970s, and he did everything he could to encourage that young man to go to seminary to the degree that that young man was accepted at Dallas Seminary, but decided he needed to spend four years in the Marine Corps before he went to seminary. That four years turned into 28 years, and Dan finally was forced to retire saw that coming, and he called me in 1996 and said, Marine Corps is going to make me retire soon. Nobody knows this, but I majored in Bible as an undergraduate, studied under Dr. Gramacki, and I think I need to go to seminary. What should I do? And since he was living in the D.C. area, I told him he should go to Capital Bible Seminary, which he did and became very good friends with the head of the Greek department who was a Dallas graduate, THM and THD, who had gone to the uh, United States Naval Academy and had taken his commission to the Marine Corps. I just knew they would become good friends, and they did. By the way, Dan is doing quite well with his treatment for his uh, cancer, for his brain cancer, and the doctors are very well pleased. He's doing very well. He had a couple of speed bumps the first week or so, but everything's ironed out. And he's doing great, and uh, continuing the treatments. I think he has either another week and a half or two and a half weeks. I'm not sure, but he is doing very, very well. Anyway, there are several others who are speaking at the. Uh, Gary, I was talking about Gary Gramacki, and uh, he's a great, good scholar, taught at Capital. I mean, at uh, what is that Baptist Bible Seminary up in uh, Pennsylvania for many years, and is now at Calvary University. So that's going to be a great thing and I'd encourage anybody who can, especially if you're listening and you live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area to try to come because that is just an outstanding, very informative uh, conference. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to take some time to make sure we're walking by the Spirit, walking with the Lord. When we sin, That stops the walking by the Spirit. So we need to recover, and that's simply by confessing sin. And that restores our position so that we can continue to walk. It's not just a passive thing. It's very active. We are involved in enjoying our fellowship and growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we can come together this evening. We're thankful for your grace, your goodness to us. We don't deserve any of it. You have showered us with many physical blessings, with many spiritual blessings. You've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And Father, you have given us more than we can imagine. And Father, we're thankful that we have the heritage that we do in this nation, uh, a belief in freedom an understanding that liberty is grounded in a relationship with you. And, Father, we just continue to pray for the safety and security of this nation. We pray that there would be uh, men and women raised up who will serve you in many different capacities, and for men who will take the challenge to develop their spiritual gift of pastor, teacher, and evangelist and be involved in um, and ministering for you in those capacities. That is the heartbeat of the nation. That is the only thing that will produce health, spiritual health, and vibrancy for genuine prosperity, and we pray for that. Now, Father, we pray for us as we study in Samuel that we might continue to understand the dynamics here and all the many implications and applications that flow out of this wonderful book, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and while you're turning to that, I got a call from Bob Guerra. Bob's the chairman of the board for the Dean Bible Ministries, and we frequently talk, and he's a lawyer, and he was reading uh, through a paper recently put together on telling Uh, Lawyers, how they need to present their cases to juries because juries today are not like juries 30 or 40 years ago because they're drawn from a pool of people, of citizens, that no longer think, act, or have the same values as those from 30 or 40 years ago. And so it's a fairly short uh, paper, a couple of pages, but... The root of of what this man who wrote it says is that Americans are becoming less and less grounded in objective facts. That means they're living in a fantasy world. Just want to make sure you understand the implication there. They're becoming less and less grounded in objective facts. Some jurors don't even believe in the concept of facts. Relativism has done enormous damage to the reasoning ability of many jurors. Emotions and their close cousin, pictures, rule the verdict-making process. Now, you can take that and apply it to any audience in any church today as well, that they are less and less grounded in objective facts. That's why they don't go to church. That's why they reject Christianity, because they don't know how to process facts and they don't know how to process truth. But that really isn't anything different. That's just a different twist on an age-old problem called sin and depravity and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We have been, that is, mankind has been suppressing the truth and unrighteousness since Adam, Sometimes it takes one form, sometimes it takes another form, and the forms that it's taken for the last three or 400 years since the Enlightenment, which was based on bringing modernism into the world, modernism is grounded in the value of logic and reason and facts. Now we live in postmodernism, which rejects all of that, and so it takes a slightly different approach, doesn't change the content, but you're talking to people who don't think like people did 30 or 40 years ago. So we have a different mindset in the American mission field than we had 30 or 40 uh, 40 years ago. But just think about that, because that statement is true to some degree for everyone here, because we're products of this same culture. We may not recognize it. It may not be as severe, but that describes all of us at times and in this culture and this world system in which we live our sin nature's gravitate to anything that can give us a better justification for our sin if we could only look into david's soul to see his justification for his sin which is where we're headed in first or in second samuel uh, chapter 11 so the theme and I'm doing a little bit of an overview tonight on these next couple of chapters, is really God's grace that triumphs over sin. So often when you get into, or when I've heard some people get into this episode, this tragic episode with David, they spend so much time talking about the evils of sin and adultery and murder and the emphasis, and that needs to be part of the emphasis because that's the emphasis of the text. But the broad emphasis of the text here is on God's grace. The broad emphasis is on ultimately forgiveness, recovery, and hope. So we shouldn't lose sight of the forest for the trees. because this And, and it's easy to do that because this is one of the worst sections of Scripture that, that I ever read through is because you just read about David's failure and then chapter after chapter after chapter are just the... His divine discipline, the judgments and the consequences, but it ends well because there's recovery and there's hope. So let's just orient ourselves to where we are in 2 Samuel. In the first 10 chapters, we see the blessing of God as God blesses David. He has victory over his enemies, expands the borders of the kingdom, and everything is going wonderfully And the centerpiece theologically is the giving of the Davidic covenant. This isn't in chronological order, as I have said. It focuses on uh, building to that and showing how God blessed David. And then it it turns in 11 to 20. That's the second part where we see David's sin and then God's discipline on David as he reaps the consequences for his sin. But God turns the cursing into blessing and it is he's able to do that because David confesses his sin and turns back to God and so he then has the tools the spiritual tools to handle the negative consequences that he brought on and brought into his own life and then we'll get to the last four chapters at uh, the third part which are these appendices that evidence the greatness of the Abrahamic covenant, now, just as a overview of this section, it goes from ten through twenty now we 've already looked at ten, which is the setup, why there is this battle, this war that is developed with the Ammonites at uh, the capital Rabah, and so we get the background in chapter ten and then we get into the second part of the battle in chapter eleven. And that sets us up for David's unfaithfulness. So chapter 11 describes the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the sin of the murder of Uriah the Hittite. David does not directly murder him, but he conspires to have him murdered by combat. You know, we have this phrase today, suicide by cop, where somebody brings out a weapon, And charges the police so he didn't have the guts to shoot himself, so he has the police officer shoot him. Well, that's what David was doing, is having Uriah killed by the enemy. So it was an act of murder. So David is guilty of adultery, and he's guilty of murder. And then uh, that is going to bring about his confession of sin, which happens in chapter 12. And we're going to get into looking at Psalm 51, which is the psalm that relates to his confession, as well as Psalm 32, which is his psalm of praise to God for forgiving his sin. There's a lot to learn here. So we see the the consequences, though, involve his own family in many ways sort of um, replaying his own sin. We have the rape of Tamar. We have the, the uh, uh, murder by Absalom of uh, his brother who's raped Tamar. We see, uh, the, uh, before that, we see the death of the child. And so we see the death of the child, the rape of Tamar, uh, Absalom, and then we eventually end up with Absalom's rebellion then David is brought back, and so we see recovery and we see hope. So the story has a dark side to it, a dark period, but it ends with recovery and hope because of God's grace, and so we can't lose sight of of God's grace. Now, another way to sort of structure this is uh, set forth in a commentary in the Expositor's Bible Commentary Series by Ronald Youngblood, And he sees a chiastic structure here. Remember, a chiasm is identified as a chiasm because of the Greek letter that looks like an X, like the first letter in the Greek, Christos. And so it emphasizes the idea that that you have a progression, maybe only two or three things, maybe more. Uh, Here it has uh, four and then the centerpiece and then a repetition. So there's a parallel between the first part, uh, David sends Joab to besiege Rabbah, and, th- and that's in eleven one. And then at the end of the section, David se- uh, Joab sends for David to come and lead the ar- army to besiege and capture Rabbah. And as you go through this, there's parallels. We'll come back and look at this again and again as we go through it. But the centerpiece that is being emphasized is God's displeasure with David because of David's sin and that is in 11.27 uh, and 11.27 reads um, the, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord so that sets the stage that's the focal point in a chiasm that centerpiece because you see you have a, like the left side of an X here it's that centerpiece is the focal piece that is being emphasized here is God's displeasure with with David. So as we get into this there's always a number of interesting questions that people come up with. One is has been asserted by some scholars is that Bathsheba was raped and you can expect that in a me too generation that we have now where uh, unfortunately many men are caught in traps because they're just interested in a woman and expressing their interest. And there are some women who take that as some sort of illegitimate aggression. Uh, there are many cases. I'm not minimizing it. There are many cases where men are abusive and men are, are too aggressive. And this is horrible and should be dealt with. But in my opinion, don't come up 30 years later and say, well, and when nobody can remember anything, so there's problems with it. But there's this this whole emphasis today that is, uh, I don't think David would have a very good time with it uh, because of Bathsheba. And even today it may cause people who do not have the right biblical perspective to misinterpret all this. How in the world can God be gracious to a man who's done something like this? And that's a misunderstanding of sin. We have all been unfaithful to God in much the same way because uh, that's, that's the essence of sin. We've all uh, rebelled against God. So questions that people come up with, was Bathsheba raped? Did David just abuse his power? And he did. But did he rape her? Is there any indication of that, that she was an unwilling participant? And I don't think so. Was she in love with David? Well, that's an interesting question. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that anybody loved anybody else. You don't have Abram saying, oh, Sarah, I love you so much. You never find out that, oh, Adam loved Eve so much. It never talks about that. This whole idea of romantic love in a marriage is pretty much a modern western civilization idea and not that there's anything wrong with that I think it's a very good thing but we don't know it's not an emphasis in the text God isn't making an issue out of that that's not the point was she complicit the only thing we know about Bathsheba is that she was beautiful and that when it became clear that she was pregnant she sent David a message and said I'm pregnant you can't build a whole lot around that but that's that's all that the text really tells us. And the other interesting thing is throughout the rest of the scripture, Bathsheba is always identified as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Even in the chronology and the genealogy with of Jesus in Matthew one, Bathsheba the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You don't ever see her identified as Bathsheba the wife of David. Now, when it comes to the situation, she is out on her roof bathing. Now, why in the world is she bathing on the roof? Why isn't she inside? Why isn't there some sort of privacy curtain? Uh, we don't know. Does she know that David is in town? Because David's supposed to be away with the army. So does she know that David is in town and that David's just a couple of houses down and he's higher so he has a perfect view of every rooftop? If you've ever been to the old city of Jerusalem, you know that it has quite a slant going from the millow, which is just above where they've discovered uh, David's, uh, David's palace now, where you enter into the city of David and you sit there and you can buy some ice cream or other snacks and go to the restroom and whatever, and then you go down and you can actually now, as opposed to 10 years ago, you can walk around in what they believe are the foundations of David's palace. But that's at the top of the hill and it slopes down so every other house was lower than the palace. So David had a clear view of what was going on on every uh, every rooftop. So does she know that he's there, that he's looking? Is she showing off? We don't know. None of those questions are addressed or answered. There's no indication. Uh, Was this just one time? Or was this a one-night stand? Did they continue in the adultery? Uh, Even though she suffers in association, this is interesting. Even though she suffers in association, Because she's married to David, she goes through all the discipline. It's never pointed at her. It's David's discipline, but she suffers. She's disciplined in association. She gives birth to that child and she dies. And all you ladies know this that when a mother loses a child, that is an extreme grief. So she loses that child. Uh, and she has to live with all the, this, the sin in the family and the complete breakdown. She has to leave with David from, um, from Jerusalem during the Absalom Rebellion. So, but she gets blessed by association because she's in the line of Christ. She will have a, another baby who will be Solomon, and Solomon is in the line of Christ. So she's blessed by association. So these are just some of the questions. And on much of that, the Bible is silent, but we can say a few things as we look at the narrative to see what the writer of Scripture wants us to learn in this episode. And sometimes we don't we try to read the Bible like we're reading modern literature, and the writer of the Bible is not answering all our prurient questions. The writer of the Bible is trying to make some points that are significant. And God's plan for the human race. So first of all, we're going to look at just four things that we have to understand in terms of, uh, these, these chapters. And by these chapters, I mean chapters 11 and 12. First of all, the writer's main point in this section really isn't the sin of, of adultery or murder. His main point isn't God's grace forgiveness, restoration, and hope. His main point is the birth of Solomon. Why? Let's go back to what we learned when we studied Genesis about 10 years ago. Why do you have the genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis, Genesis 10 and Genesis 11? God made a promise in Genesis 3.15. He said to uh Eve uh, to the serpent, actually, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, and that word "seed" is so important because the seed there refers to the Messiah, and so you have this the tracing of the line of the seed in the genealogies. That's why they're important because you can trace using the genealogies, the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And so this is this line of the Messiah, that Bathsheba is the mother of of Solomon, and Solomon is going to be the heir of David and the one who receives the, the, the next generation of the promises of the Davidic covenant. And so this is the focal point, the birth and the choice of Solomon as the heir and the one who is in the line of the Messiah. Now, there's other aspects to this that are also important. There's a personal spiritual level, that grace is the overarching message here. So this is a secondary Uh, secondary theme in this whole episode, and it's also an important, just because it's not the primary theme doesn't mean it's less significant. And it communicates that we must, a lot that we must learn about sin, about arrogance, about spiritual failure and death, forgiveness, restoration, and hope. At a personal level, we learn of David's succumbing to temptation And the scripture says a lot about the dynamics of that. And as a result of that, there are going to be consequences to sin. God forgives him, which means the sin is not going to be held against him in the way that it would. When God forgives us of sin, God is going to do one of two things. He is going to intensify the discipline to a point where we really do wish we were dead. Second, he's n- not going to intensify the discipline, but he is going to allow us to reap the consequences of that sin. Third, he is going to commute the consequences and any divine discipline. And you and I know very well that most of the time God does not lower the boom on us because of our sin. He commutes that. That's part of God's grace. But we learn a lot about this whole principle because that's that's what is emphasized, especially in chapter 12. Chapter 11 describes the sin, and chapter 12 describes for us the consequences, and it is spelled out by Nathan the prophet. So we see this dynamic that goes on with sin. Sometimes that when we make a sinful decision, there are natural consequences as a man reapeth, so he will sow, as a man sows, so will he reapeth rather. And uh, as a result of that, we have natural consequences to sin. But then, when we commit some sins, God intensifies that particular punishment. So with David's case, what we see is in God's grace, he commutes the penalty. The penalty for adultery and for murder under the Mosaic law is death. They're both capital crimes. If David had gotten what he deserved, he would die. And so death is very much a part of what we see happening in the divine discipline. The child will die. There's going to... uh, uh, be the death of, of uh, Absalom. We're going to see the death of Amnon, and uh, this is going to be the consequences of sin. Sin brings forth death in different ways, not just not just in terms uh, of spiritual death. So we're going to see see the working out of that of that discipline. Now, when we look at what the Scripture says about sin, we recognize that at the very core, that which drives our sin are sinful desires. The Greek word is epithymia, which should be translated lust. It is not just a desire in the sense that, well, I'd like to do this. It is a driving force in in our sin nature. And it wars against the soul. This is what Peter says in first Peter two eleven. Abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul, that when we give in to these lusts, power lust is one. Materialism lust is another. We have lust for uh people, for approval, we have lust for love, we lust for recognition we lust for sex we lust for all kinds of different things that drive our behavior we need to identify them and we rec- and recognize that those lusts attack and destroy our soul that's the danger and when we're studying this in relation to the sufficiency of scripture in second peter that's one of the dangers in going to to people educated and Trained in modern psychiatric issues is they don 't recognize sin as the problem they may give sin a, a window dressing, but they don 't recognize that that 's the core issue and the core problem, and why it is self destructive we 're doing it to ourselves, so lust which war against the soul first peter two eleven second Peter one four which we 've been studying right now on Thursday nights that By these great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The world is corrupt because of lust in terms of its origin with Eve and then Adam and the ongoing problems because of all of the lust patterns that are unrestrained. And it just snowballs through the ages and through the... Through the centuries. So, as we look at this episode, it provides a window into the pathology of sin temptation, arrogance, lust, action, where we act upon the temptation, the consequences, the guilt following the consequences, the sorrow that comes, the grief that comes, then confession, and then restoration. Forgiveness, rather, and restoration. And then as we get back to walking with the Lord, the suffering for discipline is converted into suffering uh, for blessing. 2 Peter 2.10 says, Especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. This is related to the false teachers that Peter is condemning in the second chapter. But look at that. They walk according to the flesh. That's always in contrast to walking according to the Spirit. But the flesh is described as being motivated by the lust of uncleanness. That can relate to uh, sexual immorality, but it can relate to everything from pride and arrogance to uh, mental attitude, sins of bitterness and jealousy, to sins of the tongue, to sins of, of overt sins such as... Uh, murder and abuse, physical abuse, things of that nature. We always have to come back to our understanding of the sin nature. I, as I said on Sat, uh, I mean on Thursday night when I talked about this recently, I think this is a great diagram for understanding a lot of human behavior. It's driven by a lust pattern. At the core of our sin nature is a big uppercase bold face I. It's all about me. It's all about my ego. It's all about me doing what I want to do, and we that drives this. That's driven by lust, this desire. And what it does is it latches on to all manner of things in the creation. Every detail of life that you can imagine is latched onto as a source of meaning and happiness. It can be our kids, it can be our grandkids, it can be where we live. It can be enjoying retirement, it can be our job and becoming something, being known for what we do. It runs the gamut. It can involve dependency upon drugs or alcohol, it can involve uh, fame, it can involve fortune. All of these different things are what what drives us to do much of what we do. And then that forces us in one of two directions, a direction of moral degeneracy or a direction of immoral degeneracy. Now, a lot of people don't understand moral degeneracy because you think of degeneracy only in terms of degenerate licentious sins. But no group was more morally degenerate than the Pharisees. They were extremely moral. There are certain cults spinoffs of christianity that emphasize tremendous legalism and they are moral degenerates and only if you understand the truth of the word you understand grace can you comprehend that so these are people who trend towards asceticism and legalism they like a lot of rules and following those rules and getting a lot of recognition for that in this life immoral degeneracy of course is easy to understand licentiousness, uh, sexual licentiousness, uh, antinomianism, which is just rejecting any standards, rejecting authority. That's very popular in our culture since the late 60s. So these are the trends. But at the heart is this lust pattern. So we have a dynamic for sin that's spelled out through the Scriptures. In Genesis 3, 6, we have the temptation of the serpent, who is Satan. And he tempts Eve, and he said, has God really said you shouldn't eat of that? And that if you eat from this, he just doesn't want you to be like him. And if you eat from the fruit, he knows you'll be like him, and he's just keeping these good things from you. So the woman looks at it, okay? This is the lust of the eyes. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. So this is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. She took of the fruit and ate, and now she is a sinner. And then she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So that's the starting point. It is looking lustfully, that desire, and acting upon it. Then in Genesis 4, 7 As we see Cain being jealous of God's uh, favor toward his brother Abel, God warns Cain because it says in the text that his face has fallen. That's an idiom for the fact that he's depressed and angry because God has accepted his brother Abel and he worked so hard in his fields to produce all of this wonderful produce that he brought as an offering to God rather than following God's instruction and sacrificing uh, an animal. And God tells him, if you do well, in other words, if you do the right thing, uh, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, okay, so if you're disobedient to God, sin is crouching at the door. And this is an extremely uh, vibrant image here. And it is an image of an animal, of a a leopard or a lion, some wild animal about to pounce on its prey. Sin lies crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. And that's the same word, incidentally, that's used over in Genesis chapter 3, when God is talking to the woman and saying that your desire is for your husband. It's not the word that's desiring in a favorable favorable way, but is a word that means a desire to control and to dominate. So this is, and, and the husband wants to rule over the wife, so that's the origin of the whole uh, conflict that comes out in marriage is you have two sin natures, two people who want to both be little gods, and they want it to be all about them. So the only way to resolve that is Ephesians 5, which talks about, The husband needs to love the wife as Christ loved the church, and the wife submits to the husband, and they work together as a complementary team. So this is sin. It desires to dominate you. It desires to dominate me, and it controls us, and it's not until we're saved that this domination is broken. It's still there, and we give it too much power. Then we go forward into the New Testament, and in James 1.14 we read, but each one is tempted. This is the pathology of temptation. Each one is tempted. It uses the word temptation here not in the objective sense of a test, but in the subjective sense of being drawn or attracted to sin. Each one is tempted. That's uh, The picture here is of a trap have a trap and you bait the trap you bait the trap with something desirable something delectable something you want and so you see it and you your desires attract you to it and the word for desire here is the word epithemia which means lust desire i think is a little softening of the concept it means that you you lust for it you have to have it you just can't live without it. You have to do it that at that moment that dominates your thinking. So you're drawn away by your own lust and enticed. And that word means to take the bait. And you take the bait, and now that desire has conceived. It's given birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death, not physical death. This is a death-like existence. It may include physical death for some, uh, but it brings a death-like existence because now as a believer, you're living like you're a spiritually dead person. You're not living like you're uh, regenerate and that you've been given the Holy Spirit and the Word of God so that you can live with joy and peace and love in your life This is giving yourself over to death. Now, we see it involving physical death in David's situation because the baby's going to die and Amnon's going to die and Absalom's going to die and there are a lot of people in the rebellion that die. So it just produces a tremendous amount of physical death as well. And then we come to one more passage in 1 John 2, 15 through 17 where John says, Do not love the world... Or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, the world refers to the values and the thinking of what I call the cosmic system based on the Greek word for world called cosmos. Cosmos summarizes all of the thought systems and religious systems that are antithetical to God, that are opposite to God, all of the human viewpoint systems of thought that are in opposition to the word of God as the ultimate authority. And so if you are attracted to the world system, you're attracted to all the things that the world offers in terms of fame and fortune and prosperity, that that is a dead end. If anyone loves the world, if that's what motivates you rather than love for God, it's one or the other. In James, James goes on to say that friendship with the world is enmity toward God. There's only two options. You're going to attract to the world and adopt the world's values and the world's goals and the world's objectives, or you're going to be attracted to God and follow the and walk with the Lord, one or the other. You can't do both. They are antithetical to one another completely, so John says, don't love the world or the things in the world don't value those things; they get rid of them in your priorities. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them four now he's going to explain that in verse sixteen for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh." The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the cosmic system is, reflects the thinking of its father, the devil. It's grounded in arrogance. It's grounded in what is right for me based on what I think is right for me. This is exactly where we are in postmodernism. It's all about me. It's all about feeding my own arrogance. And so you see people who are driven by every category of lust, materialism, financial success, uh, sexuality, experiencing every kind of high they can come up with with uh, drugs because they're avoiding all the pain of life as a fallen sinner living in corruption. They don't know how to handle it. And what we lust for, we discover, is ephemeral. It's gossamer dreams. It's nothing. It's fleeting. It has no significance. As soon as we grab it, it's like taking a big um, big bite out of cotton candy. There's no substance to it. It looks good. It has a little bit of a sweet taste at the beginning, but then we're going to pack on the pounds eventually. There's always a dead end. So lust is destructive. The lust of the flesh isn't restricted just to the sin nature. It's physical desires, and there can be a lot of physical desires, physical desires, uh, sexual physical desires, physical desires in terms of uh, lust for drugs, things that you become addicted to, physical uh, lust for pleasure, all kinds of pleasure. The things that we do sometimes produce certain chemical reactions in our brain that stimulate very uh, emotional areas in, in our brain that we associate with happiness. And so food can do that. Food and sugar especially can stimulate the same areas of pleasure in the brain that cocaine does. Next thing you know, you're addicted to food, and so you want to solve every problem or every difficulty with eating. And every time you have something wonderful happen in life, you go out and eat more. Next thing you know, you have problems that are related to overeating and gluttony. So you have the lust of the flesh in many different areas and the lust of the eyes. You see things and you want them. And we have a whole advertising system today, and it's gotten so much worse with your iPhones and iPads and Computer, because they're mining all the data. Every time you go look at something online, next thing you know, within five minutes, you're getting multiple advertisements for the same kind of thing, and they're designed to appeal to your lust of your eyes so that you'll spend your money and buy more as you're chasing that fleeting sense of happiness. And the pride of life, arrogance, that that governs the sin nature, and this is David's root problem. David has reached a point in his life when he's become incredibly successful. God has prospered him beyond anything that he could imagine, beyond anything that Saul ever experienced, and as a result of that, David can sit back and just think and enjoy all of these riches And instead of going off to battle, which he should have done, he's put himself in a position where he is open to temptation, open to uh, seeing something that will test him and will stimulate the lust of the flesh. And so it's all because of arrogance and john says that's not of the father it's of the world so we see these dichotomies that are set up in scripture it's either of the world or it's of the father it's either of the devil or it's of, of god one or the other it's the cosmic system it's the sin nature it's the devil versus god versus the bible And we have to make decisions over and over again are we going to walk with the lord or are we going to walk with the world And so John reminds his readers in verse 17, and the world is passing away and the lust of it. See, this is just a desire for that which is temporary. The world is passing away. We may achieve all these things that we lust for and we desire for, but it's ephemeral. It's going to pass away. Uh, A million years from now, we're going to look back at that, just that little speck, of time in which we thought something was going to satisfy us and give meaning to our life and realize that it's nothing. It it, it didn't last. It had no no meaning or significance. But what does abide forever is doing the will of God. And every time we see in John this word abide, it's the Greek word minnow. John 15 talks about abiding in the vine. It's a fellowship word. It is enjoying that fellowship with God, walking with the Lord. The fruit of abiding is the same as the fruit of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit in Galatians uh, chapter 5. And so what he is saying here is not whoever does the will of God lives forever. It abides forever. It's talking about enjoying the fullness of life that Christ promises. He said in John 10:10, 10, 10, I didn't come like a thief to steal and destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. So abiding is enjoying that rich fellowship with God that goes on into eternity with a richer intimacy with the Father in heaven. So all of this describes the more personal aspect, the more personal application and implication that we get from, um, from our uh, lesson, from studying all of this about David and his sin and forgiveness, and there's always hope, there's always hope. No matter what happens, if we're still alive, there's hope. And just as David went through an excruciating time of divine discipline and lost his, lost two sons as a result of that, well, actually three sons if you count the child, uh, it ends up with a replacement child, Solomon, through whom the Messiah will come. So is there, there is going to be great joy despite the discipline. At a broader level, under the third point, the books of Samuel draw out the historical consequences of Israel's demand for a king in light of Samuel's warning in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and just to remind you, this is the transitional shift from the period of the judges, Samuel is the last judge, he's... Uh, and the the Israelites come to him, and they demand a king. And this is a central passage on biblical political theory. What is interesting is over the last several weeks, I've been uh, reading a lot in this area, and have discovered that there are a number of contemporary Jewish are Israeli, American Israeli scholars, legal scholars, and biblical scholars. They are not Christians. They're not evangelical. There are some, certain things that they say that we would not agree with. But they are writing on the importance of nationalism. They are writing on the importance of the right kind of politics. And they go to First Samuel 8 as one of the most significant chapters. So did the Founding Fathers, by the way. They understood what was being taught in 1 Samuel chapter 8. That up to this period, in the period of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Pure moral relativism and everything was collapsing. The whole culture was falling apart and everyone is just doing their own thing and evil is rampant in the nation and it's falling apart. So they recognize they need a central authority. But the problem is, on the opposite end of the spectrum, danger lurks as well. And that is that putting too much authority into a king is dangerous because in this life, kings are corrupt, kings are sinners, that if you put too much power in the hands of one person then it will lead to further corruption. David is an example of that. He's got too much power, and he's full of himself, and so he is now using that power to, uh, abuse, to abuse that power in relation to Bathsheba and uh, using it perhaps to intimidate her, to use his power to impress her and to have her come and have sexual relations with him. So this is how uh, Samuel plays out. Verse 6, we see that the people come, and it really upsets Samuel. He takes it personally. They request a king. They say to him, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. That's how you respond to situations that are not pleasant to you. It is you go to the Lord in prayer. So he goes to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord answers him and says, well, in this case, listen to the voice of the people. This is in verse 7. And all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. Because up to this point, God is the king in the theocracy. So he says, they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. So this is a spiritual rebellion on the part of the people. And I didn't bring this out when I when we went through it. But they God says, they have rejected me that I should not re- reign over them. They have rebelled against God's authority. And what are they going to get for a king? They're going to get Saul. And what's Saul going to do? He's going to rebel against the authority of God. And God says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So they get exactly what they deserve. They get exactly a mirror of their own rebellious culture they don't get David yet because they're not ready for it and so they get a man that's created in their uh, their image and so um, goes on to say in verse 8 according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods over and over again generation to generation they've rejected God. Now, therefore, God says, listen to their voice, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Solomon went back and told them everything. And in verse 11, he says, this is how the king's going to behave, who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots. So there's going to be a universal draft and every son is going to be taken and put into the army. And he's going to appoint appoint them, and you don't know what battles they're going to go into and what will happen to them. They're going to uh, drive his chariots, they're going to be his horsemen, and some will run, that's the foot soldiers, will run before the chariots. He'll appoint captains over the thousands, captains over fifties, he's going to organize the whole army. And then, verse 13, not just your sons, but also your daughters, as his perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will do everything to elevate his own glory, is basically what he is saying. He'll take, and then he's going to tax you. He's going to take the very best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants, and then he's going to take your male servants. In other words, you're now going to be under the dominion of a tyrant. Authority increases to where it uh, it just destroys everything. This is what the founding fathers understood is that that you can 't have a government that 's located in one person. You have to have a check and a balance to balance out that out that because if you give too much authority and too much power to any one branch of government, then it becomes a tyrant and so we have there has to be a protection on each branch of the government. This was just a genius of the American system. And so the people get the warning and they say, no, but we're going to have a king over us anyway. So they get Saul and Saul leads them to disaster. And then God graciously gives them David, not because they've asked for it, not because they've changed, not because they've reckoned or recognized how uh, rebellious they've been, but out of the goodness of God's character, he gives them uh, gives them David. And so uh, David is going to take over as the king, but when we come to chapter 11, we see that he's not perfect. that as Proverbs 16:18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. David fails the prosperity test, he gives into arrogance and after these conquests that he has had, after the fact that he has conquered Jerusalem, he's united the 12 tribes, he's defeated the Philistines and the Edomites and the Moabites and almost done with the Ammonites. He's defeated Zoban, Syria, and he has also built this enormous uh, palace for that time in Jerusalem with the help of Hiram, the king of Tyre. He had six wives now, this is going to play into this, because remember in Nathan's parable that he comes to David, he says, so there's this rich man, and he has lots of sheep, and he sees this one poor man with one sheep, he's got to have that one sheep. David may be overwhelmed with sexual lust while he's up there on the parapets of his palace, but he's got six wives that he could choose from. He doesn't have to go after uh, his friends, uh, wife and uriah was one of the mighty men he was one of those closest to david and so it is a complete abuse of power based upon his arrogance even though david has had tremendous success and physical blessing material blessing spiritual blessing and prosperity he just completely fails the prosperity test because Of arrogance. He is overwhelmed by his own self importance, his own self confidence, his own victory, and he is pictured as one who has this arrogant self assurance and an attitude of entitlement, and he can uh, order Bathsheba to come, and he can order uh, Uriah to be murdered, and all of this depicts the worst of leadership and the realities of tyranny, and it's all because of the sin nature. And then when we come to the last point, at the level of the central message of the book, we learn that even David as the ideal king is flawed. We cannot look to government to provide the solution to everything. You cannot look to government to change the environment so it's perfect. We live in a world today where so many people think that if the government would just change, if the environment would change, we could have health care. I was watching the other day, other afternoon, Sunday afternoon, they were showing uh, Ken Burns' three-part series on the era of prohibition. I saw part of one of them a couple of years ago, and it's fascinating. I don't know much about that history. Ken Burns, in many ways, does a great idea, great job with what he does. But what was interesting as they were talking about it is they made the point that in American culture that alcohol was identified as such a problem that people believed if they just could get alcohol out of the, out of the culture, then, then marriages would be healed and all marriages would be happy, and that uh, individuals would be happy. There wouldn't be Skid Row anymore. There wouldn't be unemployment. There wouldn't be all this misery. They blamed everything on this one sin of, of alcohol. But the reality is, if you go back to the Second Great Awakening, which was in the 18-teens and 1820s, that that was a legalistic re, uh, revival in many aspects. And in that period in between early 1800s and 1830s, the, the we would call them some, somewhat liberal today because they were evangelical Christians in a broad sense of that term, but they didn't believe in total depravity in a complete sense. They were very Arminian. And so they believed that man was perfectible. And Charles Finney, Charles Grandison Finney, who's touted by many to be one of the greatest evangelists of the early 1800s, but he wasn't. He was horrible. He had a work salvation. He believed man was perfectible, and if man was perfectible, society was perfectible. And this became a major part of Christianity in the 19th century. And so they identified these huge social sins, sins like slavery, uh, sins like alcohol, uh, women's uh, suffrage, the lack of women voting, uh, child labor. Couple of other things, and you just walk your way through the 19th century up to, the up to World War II, and one element after another is identified as this big sin. If we just can abolish slavery, which needed to be abolished, but if we just abolish slavery, we will be on the verge of bringing in the kingdom, because Finney was a postmillennialist, and there were a lot of postmillennialists in the 19th century. And then if we can just, um, solve, get education and get education and clean up education and have, uh, universal education in the U.S., everybody required and mandated to be educated, then that will solve the problem. Then we can have good marriages and good homes and our, and good kids. And if we can just get rid of alcohol. So all of this was part of this perfectionistic tendency that came out of the 19th century. Why? Because we had a weak view, an insipid view of sin and the problem of sin. And, and so we're always trying to bring in a utopia of some type. And so we've got a secular version of it today to bring in a secular version or distortion of the kingdom of God. And you've got a lot of liberal, leftist-type evangelical Christians who are promoting this today uh Wheaton College is one place that's a hotbed the uh, I can't remember his name now but the guy who is the um he's the, take he Oh, he is the director of the uh, ethics and social action for the Southern Baptist Convention, is just the opposite of his predecessor, Dr. Richard Land, who was very conservative and very solid, but this new guy that's taken his position is very liberal. He's written a book on the kingdom of God, and that's what they want to do, is bring in the kingdom of God through social change. It's a perversion of the biblical view of the millennium. What the principle here is that that no human being can do it. We have to have a perfect king, a perfect leader, before we can bring in a perfect culture. And so anybody who is voting for these pseudo-utopic visions of the left today is doomed to creating an extremely negative and hostile environment for biblical Christianity, and we just need to be warned about that because that's the pattern of history. And that's where we're headed. But guess what? We have hope. We always have hope. This is nothing new. You know, Satan and the enemies of the gospel and the truth have been fighting biblical Christianity for uh, thousands of years, and they're going to continue. And we just get to have the joy of riding along on the crest of the wave, knowing that God takes care of us. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for this picture that we have of David. We understand his failure, we understand the sin, we understand why he is forgiven, that he is forgiven, and we understand that despite all of the negative consequences in his life or even in our lives when we sin, that there is grace and there is hope, and that we, as long as we're alive, we should never give up hope, but we should always turn back to you whenever we do fail and whenever we sin, and we should be involved also in forgiving others and loving one another just as... God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.